So don't ever laugh as a hearse goes by For someday you'll be next in line And when death brings his cold despair Ask yourself, will anyone care? Macabre may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. My voice is probably going to be not great this episode <laughs> because um, Vegas is very dry. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> it's in a desert. Imagine. Yeah. Is it a good dry uh, heat though? Like, Oh my gosh. Well, uh, I by day one, my hands are so dry. I look like a mummy. Oh no. I don't know how people live there, to be honest. Uh, and then... You know, working at a convention where you're talking to people all day, your throat tends to get super dry. And then you just randomly start coughing for no reason. Right. I know that was me this morning when I first started talking because, yeah, they had a night. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm excited to hear about that. Um, (laughs) I didn't really do anything in Vegas other than work, which is kind of lame, but I've been there maybe 10 times so far and I'm just like it kind of at this point it just I'm in it for the food (laughs) (laughs) um there is this one really cool interactive kind of art installation that I wanted to go to but I didn't want to be that person that shows up alone because it's designed to be like an like an immersive experience it's called Mm -hmm. meow something I don't remember what the last part is, but it's basically this giant art installation that's interactive. And I think when you first walk in, it looks like a supermarket, but it's like, yeah, it's like all fake products and it's like floor to ceiling. But then there's all these like hidden passageways and hidden areas and they want you to like explore and touch things and move things around. And it's a giant building and every area is like a different you know experience but yeah i didn't go (laughs) next time maybe next time if i have someone with me then i won't feel so weird about it but (laughs) but yeah that was kind of like i'm doing this yeah yeah um next time you really have to go and do stuff yeah yeah i mean it's just you know it's not as fun when you're by yourself (laughs) that yeah i totally get that if i was by myself i i know i'm like do it but in the same time I'd be like yeah I'd be going back to my hotel room <laughs> I pretty much was in my hotel room the whole time I, I, I'm Aww. not gonna lie I ordered food <laughs> nice I had room delivery <laughs> room Heck service yeah. um I don't really know how to start this episode to be honest <laughs> I'm equally scared terrified and excited <laughs> yeah I was telling my husband I said this one's gonna be different and I feel like it's going to be me telling a lot of what, well, I don't want to give it away yet, but Ooh. yeah. So it's going to be different than anything we've done before. And there's oh. probably not going to be a lot of room for hilarity or, <laughs> Ooh. you know, yeah, um, because of the nature of, of what it is. But yeah, welcome back, listeners. We have something very different for you today. Uh, Welcome back to Macabre. My name is Holly. I'm Blair. 
And on today's episode, I'm deviating from what we've done in the past. On previous episodes, we've gone back into dark history, but this time I'm going to cover something that is a little more current. And we're going to be talking about a macabre serial killer that went on a killing spree starting in the early 1980s. Oof. Yeah. And this is Macabre's official first true crime episode, and it is very heavy. We may run a little bit longer than we normally do. We'll have to see. <laughs> There's just a lot <laughs> to cover in this case. So um, I should probably start by saying that this episode is not for the faint of heart. If we do run long, I'm just, you know, we'll we'll just drop this as two episodes back to back. So you can consider that second episode as totally. a bonus. I want to preface this episode by saying that I am sensitive to the suffering of the victims and their surviving families and friends, as well as the only known survivor in this case. Blair was not aware that I chose to cover this case, so she is actually hearing this for the first time. And I'm yeah. not even sure that she knows anything about this individual, which you'll have to tell me in a minute if you do. Yeah. Oh, I definitely um, <laughs> I have a feeling I'm not, though. Yeah, uh, it, it happened on... Um, the West Coast, which we'll we'll get into that, which is maybe why you didn't hear about it. And also you're quite a bit younger than I am. So <laughs> that might have something to do with it as well. I know that I'm going to have to edit out a lot of my breathing. <laughs> because okay, I was how, just... <laughs> <laughs> how dry my throat is from the dust balls and lack of humidity in Las Vegas. So I will apologize oh. for that in advance. But you might not notice because I may take it out. Hey, uh, I am the same way this morning. So I have actually been putting myself on mute when you're talking because I'm worried about the same <laughs> <laughs> Screaming too so, hard. Apologies, listeners. Um, yeah. So, okay. Well, let's get into it. I also want to say that I don't take any of the subject matter lately. And this case is extremely vile, depraved, and disturbing. Murder is the most macabre of macabre. And today we're going to talk about one of the worst of the worst, a serial killer who was convicted of 49 murders, but claims he killed at least 80 women. Most of the victims were murdered between 1982 and 1984. So if you do the math on that, it is a lot over that um, period of time. And oh. he claims that he continued his killing spree until 1998. Oh, no. My hope is that this episode helps to raise awareness of the danger that exists in our world and the dangers that exist for vulnerable populations who may be putting themselves in high-risk situations. Regardless of what background, sex, religion, ethnicity, demographic they are in, people have the right to feel safe and secure. No one deserves to be subjected to harm by another human being. I completely agree. With that being said, let's dig into episode G. On this episode, G is for Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. Gary Ridgway sounds familiar, but not his nickname. So I'm very curious if I've actually heard anything about him before. 
We'll find out, I guess. Well, yeah, <laughs> here we go. Yeah, uh, I do. I do want to say uh, to listeners that the information that is in this episode was actually taken from court documents. So it was taken from the prosecuting attorney's summary report. And when I say summary, the summary was like 138 pages. Wow. So that's the summary. Can you imagine what the actual (sighs) entire case report looks like? That's got to be thousands of pages. Yeah. So that's why this episode is going to be long. That's okay. Everybody loves a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack. Oh. All right. Let's get into it. Let's do this. Got my coffee ready. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Beginning in 1982, dozens of women's bodies were found dumped along the Green River and around the wooded areas of King County in the state of Washington. The women were sexually assaulted and strangled by one of the most prolific serial killers of our time. The Green River Killer is notorious for dumping groups of bodies in the same area along the Green River, but sometimes he would discard the victims elsewhere in King County. Many of his victims were picked up on the Pacific Highway South outside of Seattle, Washington, which is a known area for sex workers. Most of his victims were vulnerable teenagers or runaways. He targeted these women for very specific reasons, which we'll uncover throughout this episode. What makes this case so heinous is not only the brutality and complete disregard for human life, the violation of the dead, but also the fact that for two decades, the Green River Killers victims' cases remain unsolved, even though hundreds of witnesses were interviewed and thousands of items of physical evidence were obtained and reviewed by law enforcement, which is insane. That is insane that it was that long of a span to begin with. And then on top of it, with everything that they had, people that came forward, that is that is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, and we'll get into some of the reasons why, uh, and that's what makes this case so interesting to me. And it's all about timing, you know what I mean? This time frame. Right, made it more challenging, but we'll go into the finer details on that as well. I think it's really important to start from the beginning so that we can try to get an understanding of Ridgway's early life and what may have been the driving force for his abhorrent behavior. It's no secret that Gary Ridgway grew up in a troubled home. His mother was a domineering woman who seemed to take pleasure in embarrassing Gary, belittling him in front of his friends, and allegedly bathing Gary by hand even throughout puberty, which I won't go into all the details of what this might do to a boy going through puberty and how confusing that must have been for him. But as you can imagine, if it is in fact true, that experience is something that would have played a huge role in shaping Ridgway's view on arousal and sex and his feelings for women. Mm -hmm. He later admitted that because of these experiences, he often had sexual fantasies about his mother. And at the same time, he fantasized about killing her by cutting her throat. I told you, this is not for the faint of heart. Yeah, this is, we're already starting off real, real interesting. Real dark. Yeah. Yeah. His mother and father fought all of the time. And Gary's father was what he considered meek. And he did not step step up to protect his um, 
his children, uh, the two boys in the household. Gary witnessed uh, his mother break a plate over his father's head, and he did nothing. It's also believed that Ridgway's father may have introduced him to the idea of necrophilia when he was very young. Allegedly, and you'll hear me say allegedly a lot because I think that this was communicated by Gary in his interviews. Okay. Al- allegedly, his father told him about a coworker at the mortuary that his father worked at, and he told Gary stories about this coworker having sex with a corpse. Oh. So basically, this kid had a whole mess of things that were going very wrong in his formative years. I can't even unpack all of that. Yeah, same. That is... I mean, it's it's shaping. It's like everything that you think of when you look at what shapes a serial killer. He had, he checked all the boxes. Yeah. What's crazy is that even with all of that, Ridgway was socially accepted as a kid and throughout high school. Some thought he might be a little bit odd, but for the most part, he was likable. He was outgoing and he seemed pretty normal from that outside perspective. But the truth is, we know he was not normal at all. He had a low IQ of 82. He struggled in school, and he didn't graduate from high school until he was 20. He had the classic uh, wetting the bed until the age of 13. He was cruel to animals and was known to set fires. Now, this next part is crazy. I mean, not that we're not already in crazy territory, but he admits to stabbing a six-year-old boy in the woods just to see what it felt like. And I think Gary was a teenager at this time. Oh. And and he got away with it because it was so random that he committed the act. He basically lured this kid into the woods, stabbed him, and walked away. And the kid, of course, reported what happened, but he had no way to know who this person was. And he he told authorities that whoever did it you know, told him that he wanted to do this just to see what it felt like and that uh, when this individual walked away, that he was laughing hysterically and he just left this kid. Oh, well, that was my first question. What age was he at when he did this? But if he was in his early teens, no yeah. matter what age. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, at this time, he was already doing some of the other things that fit that criteria for shaping, you know, for checking the boxes for who a serial killer is and kind of all those telltale signs. Um, but nobody seemed to care or notice any of these signs when he was growing up. I'm I'm thinking probably less caring. They probably maybe didn't know about some of it, but if That's they did... They did not give a shit, apparently. Oh, yeah. I feel like there would have to be some level of ignorance to some of that, especially with if his mom was like that and she found out about something like that. I feel like something would have been done. You know what I mean? Yeah. All of those things. Um, Oh, well, I'm glad that the six-year-old made it out of there. Yeah, I can, I I wonder what that was like for that kid growing up, and then finding out later, making the connection, 
you know what I mean, of what is about to happen next later in life, you know, having that realization that this was probably maybe his first act on a human being and then what it um, what it develops into later. After graduation, Ridgway married his first wife and joined the Navy. He was eventually discharged from the military in 1981 due to poor performance connected with alcoholism. During his time in the military, this is when Ridgway began frequenting sex workers. I think he was over in the Philippines when he started seeing uh, the sex workers, according to the research. And on one occasion, he contracted gonorrhea from one of the sex workers, which made him very, very angry. He blamed this woman and took no responsibility for his role in contracting the STD. And some people think that this incident might have been a contributing factor uh, for his hatred towards sex workers. Ooh. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to unpack in just that statement as well. Yeah, and he <laughs> grew up in the area of that Pacific Highway South. So mm-hmm. he grew up seeing this, you yeah. know, as well. And just the the image that he had of his mother, uh, he also expressed in an interview that she would lay out and sunbathe topless. Oh. And, and this was when he was, you know, again, a kid and kind of going through those formative years of his sexuality. And that's why he developed this kind of polarity of being attracted to her, but also wanting to kill her because of everything that was kind of kind of happening. So uh, yeah, a lot of contributing factors in this case, which doesn't justify anything by any stretch of the imagination, but exactly it does make um, make you kind of have a, a little bit more insight and information of why he would think the way that he thinks. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. When Ridgway returned home from the military, he and his first wife divorced. He claims that she was unfaithful to him, and that was the reason for their divorce. Ridgway was married a total of three times. Two of his marriages ended due to infidelity, which the first wife was her infidelity, and then because of his infidelity. And he had this compulsion to have sex with sex workers, his fetish for outdoor sex acts, and his escalated violent behavior during sex with his partners also contributed uh, to to that (laughs) for obvious reasons. Yeah. The the third marriage, uh, I should back that up a little bit. The third marriage actually ended because he was arrested. So the first two, one was infidelity. The other one was because he was doing all these weird things and was addicted to sex workers and wanted to have sex outdoors and violent behavior. And then he was arrested on the last one. So his second wife got pregnant and had a son. Ridgway later admitted to using his son to make sex workers feel comfortable enough to trust him. There are actual audio tapes of him confessing that he would place his son's photo next to his ID in his wallet, which he would often show the women when he picked them up in order to earn their trust. He admitted placing his finger over the name on his ID so they wouldn't be able to learn his true identity. Oh, how uh 
I have a lot of things I want to say right now. <laughs> you feel free. Yeah, no, feel free to chime in. I, first of all, how do you think his son felt about all of that when he found that out? Second of yeah, all. <laughs> I don't know that there's ever, there probably has been. Maybe, I don't know if uh, his information is public. You know how sometimes people yeah. will change their names and all that. I'm curious too. I didn't get into that because I knew it was probably going to, this was going to run really long, mm -hmm. but it gets worse. It's not just the fact that he kept the photo. <laughs> there are other things that I'm going to tell you about too. So <laughs> oh, we're going to get into that. This is crazy. Wrong on every level. <laughs> yeah. He also kept his son's toys in his truck and even placed them on the dashboard. This was just another way to earn the trust of the women that he picked up. Ridgway claims that he was asked at least 50 times by different women if he was the Green River Killer, to which he always said no. Surprise. Yeah, surprise. Ridgway, Ridgway also admitted that he had his son with him during one of the murders. He claimed that it happened only once while his son was with him. And this happened outdoors. Supposedly, his son was in the truck and he must have taken the woman into the woods. And Ridgway admitted that uh, it only happened the one time, not because he cared about how it would affect his son. It was simply because it created a liability that he couldn't afford to risk. So there's that. Oh, he did take these women to his home to a lot of the, the murders, which I'll get into a little bit later happened at Gary's house and Gary's son would come to visit. And so Gary's son had a room in the house as well. So there's that element um, of, you know, bringing these women and they can see his son's room and bunk beds and his little name on the outside of the door. And, and if you see a picture of Gary Ridgway in his kind of younger years and just mm -hmm. look at him, he seems like a trustworthy guy. You know what I mean? Just looks like yeah. a normal, average Joe. Uh, in his later years, I think after he's arrested, he looks more crazy. I, I think he has those crazy eyes, but I think all serial killers have crazy eyes. You can oh, kind of tell. Yeah, you can totally tell something's up. Yeah. Ridgway found a lot of ways to make the sex workers feel comfortable. He offered to become a regular with them. He promised to help get them jobs and even lend them a vehicle. But he never meant any of it. Keeping a promise wasn't something he had to worry about because he knew he was going to kill them. Oh, man. Let's get into the catalyst of when the killings kind of started. Ridgway and his second wife divorced in May of 1981. So this would have been the woman that he had the child with. Okay. The reason behind their divorce was because Ridgway's wife said that his interest in sex outdoors his desire to choke her during sex, and him fre frequenting sex workers was a big problem. She even admitted that she had sex with him upon his request down by the Green River. Oh, makes you wonder if he would have maybe done that to her, you know? Yeah, I think, I think that this might have set him off. Like, I guess the divorce was pretty pretty nasty and uh you know i think there's probably a feeling of rejection because he wanted these certain things and to be honest he could have been murdering people at that time 
There's a lot of unsolved cases. You know, I don't know that I fully trust everything that he told authorities when he was arrested and after he was arrested. It's possible he was already doing it. Who knows? And he could have been taking her there as kind of like a weird fetish type thing. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I can only speculate on that. Yeah. So, yeah, after all of that craziness with her husband, she was like, no, this is way too weird. I'm, I'm getting out. And good riddance. Understandable. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if when the reports of the murders were, like, more present in the media, if she ever had that thought, knowing what she knew about him, like, Right. If she ever had a moment where she was like, this is kind of weird. And just thinking about the fact that he had taken her there and all of his behaviors. I think to think she had thought about that. I think that I would have known, you know, like if someone had these weird (laughs) fantasies, I mean, to each their own. But like there's this tipping scale of when the fantasies Mm -hmm. get just a little bit too weird. Right. I feel like that would have been a giant waving red flag and yeah. it's time time to get out of this creepy situation. Yeah. Definitely. I would have been gone like right away. Be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> nope. No, thank you. So yeah, so the it, it's believed that Ridgeway's divorce from his second wife and his anger towards her through the divorce may have been the fuel on the fire that set him off on his killing spree. About a year later, on July 15, 1982, the body of Wendy Caulfield, 16, was found by two children riding their bikes along the Green River. July 1982, a woman's body is found in the Green River. Her name, Wendy Caulfield. No one knew it then, but she was the first victim of a brutal serial killer. They saw what looked like a mannequin floating in the water. This discovery would prove later to be the Green River killer's first victim. Over the next few weeks, another four bodies were found. So, in a matter of a yeah, in the matter of a few weeks, five bodies were found. So, wrap your brain around that: how many people he was killing in that time frame? Frequent, yeah. I mean, when we look at serial killers anyway it's all anyway too frequent (laughs) no matter how many years spans or whatever but that is uh that's a lot (laughs) it is a lot yeah it was at this time that the press finally gave the killer a name they called him the green river killer i actually watched a documentary about the green river killer murders on the netflix show catching killers have you seen that documentary no i haven't you definitely need to watch it. It, uh, I think there's two seasons and they cover a lot of different killers that are famous. Uh, I think this one was in season two. Okay. And yeah, you should definitely watch it. Yeah, I'm writing that down. David Reichert, a homicide detective who was on the Green River Task Force, is interviewed on the show. And it's just incredible how hard and how diligently the task force worked to solve this case. And it just seemed like every time they got close, they'd hit a wall. You could really tell how much emotion this guy felt and how truly invested he was in solving these murders. So, yeah, for listeners, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend watching that documentary on Netflix if you have the stomach for it. Yeah. 
I, I have to add it to the list because there's if it, there's two seasons. Is it newer? I mean, did they have anything um, that has come out? I, and I think um, I'm trying to think. I think you know they cover some of the more famous serial killers. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure they go into. Eileen Warnos, who is one of the more famous female serial killers. Oh, I think they touch yeah. on Bundy. I think uh, there's the uh, the one that was like the sniper killer. I think that one's in there. Oh, okay. Um, so, I mean, I guess, you know, in the last 20 years, there's... Yeah. So... I definitely um, have to check that out. So, the first round of bodies we said were in July of 1982. Mm-hmm. And then on August 15th, 1982, three more bodies were found. Oh. So now I think we're up to eight, if my math is correct. Yeah. And they were Marcy Chapman, 31, was found in shallow water alongside the naked body of 17-year-old Cynthia Hines. And then nearby in the undergrowth lay the body of Opal Mills, 16. She was found with blue trousers knotted around her neck. Her breasts were exposed, and she had bruises on her arms and legs. It was obvious that this location was a dumping ground for whomever was involved in the murders. And this will come into play at the very end. So just listeners, take note of these three bodies. The idea of someone using the same spot over and over again just blows my mind. I mean, right. how narcissistic and detached do you have to be to keep showing up at the same exact spot thinking no one is ever going to catch you? How many right. times can you risk fate without getting caught? So that's yeah. another, I think, classic serial killer narcissism. And mm-hmm. at this point, he's he's gotten, what what do we say, eight people? Eight. Well, in, in such a short amount of time to be dumping it in the same place too. It's like, really? <laughs> once you get away with it, once I think you're, you know, you're still a little probably like cautious, but then the second and third time, you're probably a little bit, little bit more bold. What's crazy about this particular incident is he was almost caught. Detective David Reichert was one of the first authorities to arrive at the scene. Riker later discovered that he had arrived at the scene on August 15th, just 45 minutes after the killer had left the area. What? So he was less than an hour behind Gary Ridgway. Oh. So close. Oh. (laughs) And sadly, Gary Ridgway wouldn't be caught for another 20 plus years. That is. Oh, that is insane. That's why I really wanted to cover this case. I think there are people who don't know about Gary Ridgway, but just the fact that there are so many victims and this had to be so excruciating for the people involved in trying to solve these murders because for 20 years they chased this guy. And um, I mean, that's your whole career for most people. (laughs) Yeah. After the gruesome discovery of Marcy Chapman, Cynthia Hines, and Opal Mills, the King County Sheriff's Office knew that they had a serial killer on their hands. They set up a task force to investigate the murders. This task force, called the Green River Task Force, was composed of 25 people. There were 15 police officers and 10 detectives. Two of those detectives were David Reichert, 
mentioned previously, and Robert Keppel, whose name you might recognize in connection with another serial killer, especially if you're obsessed with crime documentaries. So listeners may know that name. Uh, If you don't, I'm not going to give it away just yet. We're going to get to that uh, in a little bit. Okay, good, because I'm like, that name does sound familiar. And I cannot think of, like, I don't know why. I don't think, no, I'm going to be surprised. I know yeah, I am. you'll be. I think you'll be surprised, <laughs> but then you'll be like, "Oh yeah." So, <laughs> I'm I'm not really sure how many detectives are normally on a task force, but it seems like they put a lot of resources into this investigation. That's what I was thinking too, because I I also don't know, but that seems like a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot. After the task force was created, Ridgeway escalated his crimes. More and more bodies were discovered along the Green River and in an area near the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Over the next two years, the Green River killer sexually assaulted and murdered more than 40 other women. Oh. Two mm. years. Two Two years. Frickin' years. 40 women. So do the math on that. That's 20, 20 women a year. So one to two women every month. Yeah. And if you average it out in weeks, that's one every other week. One every other week. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. On April 30th, 1983, Ridgeway became a suspect after a man reported to the police that Ridgeway's truck appeared similar to the one he had seen Marie Malvar, age 18, get into on the night she disappeared. The witness described the man inside the truck in general terms as having dark hair and between his late 30s and 40s. Ridgway was questioned by the police four days later at his home. He denied knowing Malvar and denied any involvement in her disappearance. Is anyone surprised by that? Well, I mean, I was just going to say, well, like you do. (laughs) Yeah. This gets even creepier because this incident in particular Ridgeway, when he was first questioned by the police, he later admitted that he concealed the scratches made by Melvar on his arms by leaning against a fence. He even went as far to burn himself with battery acid after the police left in order to cover up the scratches in case they came back. What? With battery acid? Yeah. But that that won't seem... Um, <laughs> Suspicious? Yeah. I think that's and I mean, way more suspicious I don't know if they than just scratches that you could say you did it while you're doing yard work or something like that. I don't know. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like, oh, I was cleaning up the brush piles. What the? Mm. So right. again, well, I, I mean, if he wants to do that to himself, I think he deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> With the yeah. battery acid. But, you know, uh, in 1984, Rebecca Gard was 18-years old when she reported to the Green River Task Force that she had been assaulted by a man back in 1982, fitting the description of Ridgeway. At first, she was reluctant to report this information to the police because she had been performing an illegal sex act when this attack occurred. Rebecca told the police that she was hitchhiking along the Pacific Highway South which is an area Ridgeway targeted and is known for being an area to pick up sex workers. A man with light brown hair in his 30s or 40s picked her up. She offered to perform oral sex for $20. 
Rebecca asked him if he was a Green River killer, to which he said no, and proceeded to show her his employee ID from his job at Kenworth Trucking. Oh. Ridgeway drove to a secluded area not far from where he picked her up and asked Rebecca to join him in the woods. She agreed. When Ridgeway pulled down his pants and the act began, he could not get aroused. He then accused Rebecca of biting him. He knocked her to the ground and put her in a police-type chokehold. After 10 to 15 seconds, Rebecca was able to break free and ran through the woods to a nearby trailer. Ridgeway chased after her but quickly gave up. He later admitted that he couldn't subdue her by wrapping his legs around her because his pants were down around his ankles. And Rebecca is the only known survivor, and she had a very solid ID on this guy. She reported to the police that she had seen Ridgeway's employee ID from the trucking company, and she was shown a lineup of six men and very easily identified Ridgeway out of the photo lineup. Oh, still didn't get caught then. <laughs> nope, he did not. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Also around this time, Ridgway tried to insert himself into the investigation by contacting the task force to offer his assistance, even though he was already known for having been arrested previously for his involvement with a sex worker. This was bold, and it definitely fits into that common behavior often exhibited by serial killers where they, they want to be involved in the investigation. It's just another way for them to kind of get off on all yeah, of this. Definitely. And that should have been another green, uh, green wow. another red flag. You could say a green flag in this I mean, case. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's the new term for flag. stranger danger is <laughs> we're flying the green flag on this one, people. Flag. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, how could they have been like, oh, yeah, well, he fits the bill and now he's trying to help out. I mean, wouldn't that have been the big wee-woo, wee-woo button, like, whoa, we need to look into this dude. Yeah, more. and I think <laughs> they honestly probably had that in the back of their minds the whole time, but there was just nothing that they could do, really, no yeah. substantial way to connect this guy to these crimes other than, <sighs> yeah, he likes sex workers, yeah, he got arrested. Yeah, he kind of looks like that guy, but they keep saying this guy has brown hair. You know, they don't have a plate number or anything like that. So Right. And then, of course, because he fits such a an average description of a person, it's just like, oh, come on, come on. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Ridgway was questioned multiple times throughout the investigation. Police said that he was, for the most part, cooperative, and he even admitted to, quote, seeing prostitutes, including at least one of the missing victims. He also admitted to, quote, dating one prostitute, who we now know as Rebecca Gardway, the person that got away. And hmm. he even told the police officers that she bit him during a sex act. Huh. So after this new connection was made, Ridgway was asked to take a lie detector test and he passed with flying colors. What? When he was asked if he had killed any of the women, he passed the lie detector test. How do you? I don't know. I mean, <sighs> I know they say they're unreliable, but yeah. I, I really think that when you're dealing with 
and I want to say sociopath, but I sometimes get that mixed up with psychopath, regardless mm-hmm. it's whatever definition he fits the category of. Right. I think they just, because they can shut that emotion down, you mm-hmm. know, it measures your heart rate and your breathing and right. all those kinds of things. If you just don't care, why would you be flustered by any of those questions? If I ever had to take a lie detector test, I'm pretty sure I would fail everything because <laughs> I think naturally I am like heavy breathing and like heart pumping <laughs> because of anxiety in general. So they, <laughs> they'd have to get like a really good baseline on you beforehand. What's oh, yeah. your name? Tell What's us your, your name, name now. And then I'd say my name. That's not your freaking name. That's my name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't be good. Yeah, my palms would be sweaty. Oh, yeah. I would, I don't know. And, you know, this is just a crazy thought that popped in my head. I wonder <laughs> if they drug test people before they make, before they take a lie detector test. Because that is I'm hearing question. now these articles, I've seen these articles about people with anxiety that take beta blockers. Uh-huh. And the beta blockers, like, slow your heart rate down. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'm curious if anyone knows about that process, maybe send yeah. us an email or a comment or something, because I am just wondering what all is involved with the lie detector. Like, what exactly are you looking for? And do we drug test these people? Mm-hmm. Just curious. Yeah, I'm curious, too. I mean, oh no, we're just talking about sweaty <laughs> palms. I have fucking sweaty palms right now. I I'm do not too. doing anything. <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> Like, for whatever reason, my right hand is a lot more sweaty than my left hand. I don't know why, but I'm glad it's not just me. Yeah, no, maybe it's this This episode is really intense, so maybe that's what it is. It could be. Yeah, I'm like on the edge of my seat as well, so you Same. might hear me closer to, closer to the mic than normal. So back, back to this craziness surrounding Rebecca. This is one thing that I can't wrap my mind around. For whatever reason, when she went to the police and picked this guy out of the lineup, she didn't press charges. She didn't pursue this any further. It it was dead at this point. And the only logical thought that I have is that maybe she just didn't want her name to be in the public and known as a prostitute. That That's really the only logic that I can come up with. I could definitely... I could definitely see that. Um, And I mean, of course, there's a lot of things that go along with reporting, things like that. But at that point, because she went, she already went to the cops about it. And why, why, if you, if you have gotten to that point of courage to bring this up, why would you not pursue it further? Because you've already done it. I mean, you're already there. You know what I mean? You, you've already, yeah, you've already yeah. done it. But not only that, you know the body count at this point. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of those women, and I don't know for sure, but I feel like sex workers, it seems like a lot of them kind of know each other and they keep kind of a community of trying to keep each other safe. Mm-hmm. And so there's that. You know, like you kind of know that this guy is targeting people who might be in your network. And but I I don't know, I can't speak for this person. And um, I just wonder if it had been taken a little bit further, maybe they could have 
gotten him arrested at least and then kind of but again they didn't really have enough physical evidence or anything to connect him to the crimes so i don't know that it could have gone further to be honest Uh, exactly it's such a they could have they could have just put a car on him or something like uh you know like an what do you call that like a private investigator or something just to watch this guy you know so I can't imagine how frustrating it would have been for investigators. I mean, you're talking about the body count is just going up and up and up. And there's really nothing that they could do about it. And I think Reichert, even in that interview um, on Catching Killers, like he gets very teary-eyed. A lot of the people that were involved in those interviews are just, you know, just they're very emotionally invested in what was going on. And... I think I even remember him saying, like, when he got teared up, he's like, we just didn't know if we were going to go to bed. And the next day, there was going to be another one, you know, and there was just nothing. They felt like their hands were completely tied. And that's that's horrible to basically spend a big chunk of your career with that. I mean, not just this case, but in other cases, too. It's like when you're trying so hard to to the bottom of this to make this stop and at what point do you just feel so defeated like i'm gonna quit the task force because yeah you, know, you have one I, job you yeah. have one job your job is to catch these guys exactly and to i think just knowing the interviews and like these incidents of this person coming forward and the witness saying they identified a truck that looks like gary ridgeways and saw this girl get into the truck and just all these things like you you're like i know this is the guy you know yeah right i know this is the person yeah and then the fact that there isn't enough evidence to technically do anything about it is just so i can't imagine the anger and frustration that they feel i mean i'm feeling it but i'm detached from you know the I, i think my husband and i we joke because you know, I'm all into the true crime, but I also alternatively yeah. really like watching Narcos and <laughs> stuff about the DEA, but also um, the cartel. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I think you he's like, I think you could have been a detective or you could have been a cartel boss in another life. <laughs> I'm just fascinated by all this, but yeah. It's yeah. Fascinating. And also, if you haven't watched Narcos, definitely give that show. Definitely check Narcos out. Yeah, I haven't. You haven't? No, I need to. Oh my gosh, yes. That's one of my favorites. Um, it's really, really good. But good writing, good acting. And then, of course, the first season is all about Pablo Escobar. And the guy that yeah. plays Pablo, is he's, his performance is, I mean, he's just, it's amazing. Um, but I digress. I'm writing it down. Narcos. Yeah. And if you want to learn Spanish, that's a great way to kind of learn your Spanish. Yeah, exactly. Now, this next part is pretty crazy. In 1986, another serial killer had been following the Green River case closely. He actually reached out to the Green River Task Force to give his insight on this case. The investigators... The investigators were desperate for any help they could get as the body count continued to rise. Investigator Reichert flew to visit this man in prison. 
During the interview, the serial killer provided a bit of key information about the man they were looking for. He told Riker that he believed that the serial killer was revisiting the sites of the murders and was possibly reassaulting the victims. This theory was later confirmed to be true by Ridgway. The man Riker interviewed was none other than Ted freaking Bundy. What? And Robert Keppel, the man I mentioned earlier, that was also part of the Green River Task Force, was the detective who actually helped catch Ted Bundy. Oh my gosh. Okay, that's why he sounded familiar. Yeah, so, I mean, we know how narcissistic and egotistical Ted Bundy was. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, I think that he didn't want to be outshined if if that's a thing. I think he's like, ooh, I want to get involved in this case. I want to give my insight, you know, and um, so, yeah, Ted Bundy inserted himself into another serial killer's case. (laughs) Typical Ted. So (laughs) not typical uh, Ted. Yeah, typical Ted. I'm shaking my head right now. You can't shake my head. (laughs) I know, me too. And and, in 1987, the task force served a search warrant on Ridgeway's home on his work locker, and several vehicles. During the search, the task force seized hundreds of pieces of evidence, including plastic tarps, ropes, carpet fibers, and paint samples. Only one item would prove significant, a saliva sample taken from Ridgeway during the execution of the warrant. Unfortunately, its significance wouldn't come to light until 2001. Ridgeway didn't keep any mementos at his home, but he did take items like jewelry to his workplace and often left them out where his female co-workers would find them, which this is kind of crazy, but he said he took pleasure in seeing the women wearing the items as they walked around his work. I was like, wait a minute. So these women (laughs) were seeing just random jewelry around the workplace and they're like, oh, I'm just going to wear this around. This is like, uh, how do you... How do you even... Who does that? Yeah. No. And then can you imagine later when they found out? I can't even imagine. Well, oh. Mm. Oh, look, free jewelry. Oh, I mean, first you're a thief. Yeah. And then you're wearing a victim of a serial killer's stuff. Yeah. But yeah, Gary Ridgway was messed up. He... He was, I mean, obviously, he was messed up. And not only did he do that, but he liked to mess with the authorities a little bit. And he would do things like leave cigarette butts at the scene of the crime or gum wrappers. And you're like, what what does that matter? Well, he didn't smoke or chew gum. So just another way to, like, throw investigators off track because he didn't do either of those things. What the heck? So they're probably looking for a guy, you know, who smokes Mm -hmm. cigarettes. And he clearly did not. And again, here we are. The authorities didn't have enough physical evidence to link Ridgway back to the victims. Another 14 years would pass before any connection between Ridgway and his victims could be made. At one point during the investigation, the task force was completely disbanded due to a lack of progress in solving the case. And it wouldn't come back together until 1997, which 
Detective Reichardt, the original lead detective, was now the acting sheriff. So he got a promotion and he was like, I can't let this case die. So mm-hmm. he brought like a small team back together to try to finally put an identity on who the person was that was responsible. And now we're, you know, we're a little bit further ahead in time. So 1997, they have that small group working on the case again. And in 2001, advances in DNA testing allowed investigators to re-examine the physical evidence obtained across the years that the Green River Killer had been active. So finally, finally, (laughs) finally. and the DNA evidence was processed for three of the victims. Do you remember the three victims that I told you to keep in mind? Yes. The three ladies that were found close to each other. All of them were able to be directly linked to the saliva sample Ridgeway provided in 1987. Oh, karma! So th- yeah, karma. Uh, <laughs> thank God they were able to get a sample from him back then. Even though DNA wasn't a te- you know wasn't a thing at that time, they right. ar- originally took the sample to try to come up with a blood type, but it didn't work. So mm. they didn't have the information they needed. And there were no profiles or databases to be able to search or compare. They didn't even have computers kind of, you know, that early on. Everything was done on paper or carbon copies. Could you imagine trying to sort, categorize, and sift through 10,000 tips, thousands of pieces of evidence without the use of a computer? I can't imagine. That's like a whole lifetime of work. Yeah. And the one guy that was on the task force, he was retired at this point. And he came back as a volunteer just to be the guy who was going through all of this evidence. Good guy. Good for you, dude. Yeah. And that's in that um, documentary I was telling about. And it would have been so frustrating to not have answers and just constantly be, you know, to to be wondering if they were going to find another body over the span of 20 some years. Right. And finally... On November 30th, 2001, Ridgway was arrested as he was leaving work at the Kenworth plant. Finally, on December 5th, Ridgway was charged with four counts of aggravated murder by the King County prosecuting attorney in the case of Carol Christensen, Cynthia Hines, Marsha Chapman, and Opal Mills. In three of the four counts, DNA evidence linked Ridgway to the victims. The body of Cynthia Hines was discovered within a few feet of the two other victims, which indicated that the same killer was responsible even though they couldn't link her DNA or his DNA to her in this case. It's possible that the condition of her body when found did not allow for a viable sample, but Proximity won out because he was narcissistic and Mm -hmm. dumped the women in the same place. It actually helped to solve her case versus had he put her body somewhere else. So in 2003, Ridgway pleaded guilty to 49 murders, although that number is thought to be much higher with some victims still being identified to this day. As part of a plea bargain to avoid the death penalty, Ridgway agreed to disclose the location of more missing women. For the next five months, Ridgway was interviewed extensively. 
he was able to map out the location and provide accurate and eerily detailed descriptions of at least 49 murder victims, which were able to be substantiated. He was able to recall the location of the bodies and took detectives to the various sites of the victims. And that in itself says a lot to me. To yeah. Th- the fact that he had that kind of recall and was able to find every single site that he that he dumped a body right. is insane to me. And especially with how many in that time. Like, I can't find that- my car in a parking lot. Yeah. Half the time, I don't even remember what the fuck I had for breakfast, yeah. let alone, uh, mm-mm. Yeah, and I don't remember people's face. Like, I'm really bad about when I meet someone, like, I don't remember their name. If you say your name yeah. to me, I'm going to forget it two seconds later. Sorry, right. but that's no how offense. my brain works. Exactly. Like, no offense to you, but that's totally just how my brain is. <laughs> yeah. And because he corroborated he received a sentence of life without parole instead of the death penalty. I'm shrugging my shoulders. Uh, Yeah, I'm shaking my head. (laughs) He later stated that the women that he killed were easy targets and that, oh, hold on a second. I have a clip for you. I'm going to read you this. No, I think I want to play you the clip first. Okay. What what should I do? Should I read it or should should I play the clip first? Let me read it first and then I'll play the clip. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. Because he cooperated, he received a sentence of life without parole instead of the death penalty. He later stated that the women that he killed were easy targets and that no one would miss them. Because they were sex workers and runaways, he believed that he could kill as many as he wanted to and no one would miss them. He also told detectives that he thought he was doing them a favor by killing them. And I'm actually going to play the recording of this statement and i i choked her to death then i took my socks off and tied got them in, in a knot and tied them around her neck and tied them as tight as i could and so she raised her head up and that's when i uh put my arm around her my right arm and started choking her but I thought I was doing you guys a favor, killing, killing buses. Here, you guys can't control them, but I can. Did you get that? I did. Like, mm, fucking no, disgusting. So, so nonchalant. Yeah. Just like a normal conversation. Yeah. Very. Like over. I mean, like it, like your chemistry teacher. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's how mine was. <laughs> Very um. Yeah. Monotone. Yeah. Like, Um, and especially with how it ended there, that last statement, I just, I want to slap this guy to begin with, but that just 100% made me definitely agree to slap this man. Like, yeah. And Riker, uh, you know, the guy who was leading the charge on this, this case and, you know, had worked so diligently. He actually sat down. I think he was the one who was talking to Gary Ridgway in this clip. And he mentions in that documentary, and I'm probably not going to quote it correctly, but kind of to the effect that when he was sitting in the courtroom, when they handed down the verdict, um, Riker, as Gary Ridgway walked past him to exit, Mm -hmm. Riker was like, looked at him, he goes, 
we got you, you asshole, or something like that. Like, we got you, you son of a bitch. Like, he was oh. like, we finally got you, you know? Yeah. And he's like, it probably wasn't very professional of me to say that, but he's like, I had to, I had to get it in there, you know? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. my gosh. Um, I had mentioned that most of the murders Ridgeway claimed happened at his home in the back of his pickup truck. He also, um, when he killed them in the pickup truck, he did it under a canopy or he killed them somewhere outdoors. He admitted to killing one woman in his bedroom and one nearly escaped, but he killed her at the front door before she could get out of the house. Bringing women home was a regular thing. As I mentioned earlier, he wanted the women to see his son's room with his bunk beds and little toys. And mm -hmm. it was just another way for him to deceive what a monster he was, like, deceiving these women. And um, now we're going to get into some trigger warning on necrophilia. So if you, I mean, obviously it's triggering, but I'm, I mm -hmm. just want to put that out there that probably like the next 30 seconds or so, you might want to um, skip past that. Ridgway bragged to investigators that killing was his career and choking is what he did. And he thought he was pretty good at it. And those are his words. He, he also claims that he killed upwards of 80 women and admits to violating the corpses of the women he killed, visiting multiple times after they were dead until they had, quote, maggots on them, which is exactly what Ted Bundy told investigators the killer was probably doing. Yeah. And Gary Ridgway, I would say, fits the category of an organized killer. Now, again, if you work in crime and you, you know, or psychology of a criminal, please don't quote me on this. This is just kind of from my perspective and my understanding um, of organized killers. Uh, that is basically the criteria is that someone who leads a methodical life that is also replicated in the way that they commit crimes, which we know he was dumping the bodies in the same area. He kind of had the same MO. And this type of killer usually will uh, kill after experiencing some sort of a trigger coming from an intimate relationship, finances, or employment problems. These offenders, it's claimed, are likely to have skilled employment, be between an average to high level of intelligence, and be socially proficient, which Ridgway didn't fit the criteria of intelligence, but he was a truck painter for Kenworth Trucking for almost 30 years. And that is a very like meticulous, repetitive job. And he never missed a single day of work. So think about that. He was committing these crimes. I don't know if it was during his work week, but he never missed a day of work, which I think plays into that whole like organized you know, meticulous, kind of regimented. Yeah, so it's possible that he showed up to work right after killing someone or the night, you know, the next day. I don't know. Just it's crazy to think about that these people worked with him for 30 years and no one ever suspected it. And I didn't mention uh, Gary Ridgway at one point in his adulthood while these crimes were happening. He was a very regular church attendee. So he went to church a lot. And 
Uh, some of the reports say that he was kind of like obsessive about it, which again, total classic serial killer trait to be obsessive with something. And I don't know what at what point he stopped going, but yeah, this guy was married. You know, he had a kid. He went to church. He never missed a day at work. He looked pretty harmless. And uh, he had this uh, monster inside of him. You never know. You never know. I mean, you might have known if you were married to him. But from outward appearances, most people would have never known. And Ridgway was convicted. After his conviction, he was incarcerated at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington in January of 2004. So it took three years before he was actually, like, you know, officially incarcerated. And he is currently serving 49 consecutive life sentences without the chance of parole. So thank God for that. Gary is segregated from the other prisoners because he is at high risk of harm by the other inmates. And I'm just like, throw him in there with the general population. I don't think we should be protecting these people. Don't get at me, listeners. I'm sorry. Uh, not sorry. And uh, the reason the reasoning behind this is some of the people that are in the prison with him are actual family members of some of the victims. Yeah. So that would make him a huge target. I think he would have been a target anyways, but this, it definitely makes sense, I guess, why they mm -hmm. are keeping him segregated. And yeah. Ridgway refuses to speak to the media or press, but he does admit taking great pride in the killings. And kind of to wrap up the case on, I guess, a high note if that's even a possible thing. Yeah, um, with just, everything. <laughs> yeah, kind of just uh, stick with me, listeners. As recently as 2021, a detective who worked on the original task force, which it is the same guy that I told you was retired and kind of came back to help, this guy, in collaboration with the DOE Project, which is a nonprofit organization that seeks to give names to Jane and John Doe's through DNA was able to put a name to the Green River Killer's youngest victim. She was murdered back in 1984. For almost 40 years, her identity remained a mystery. And at the time of her murder, she was only 14 years old. Her name was Wendy Stevens. And the guy that worked with this organization was the detective who discovered or was on site, the first on site, when this body was found. So oh he was gosh. able to get closure for, you know, finding this young girl and for 40 years not knowing who she was. And that I, was, that was 20, 2021. So we're talking, you know, this is 2023. We're talking two years ago. Yeah. So that there's still crazy. progress. There's still the potential for uh, these unidentified victims to have names. And currently, of the 49 that he admitted to, three of them still do not have identities. So there are three more women in that group that don't have identities that they're trying to, you know. I hope they find out soon. And honestly, congratulations, kudos. The, 
most kudos that can ever be given to the guy that came out of retirement to do this. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Yeah. I think it would be really hard to retire and know that you didn't, that you weren't able to solve this case. And especially him being so close to uncovering the body of, I mean, they're all involved in uncovering the bodies, but like this one in particular, I think she was buried uh, or dumped in, um, it was like a baseball field, which is not kind of like his normal dumping area, but yeah, yeah, she was only 14. And um, another crazy fact is there is currently a bill on the table to end the life without parole option in Washington state. One of the opposing parties to this bill being turned over just happens to be the sister of one of the victims. What? So she is basically saying you're not going to freaking overturn life without parole. Yeah. Which right now that means that there's no chance of these people getting out and Washington is trying to to overturn that. And this woman is like, absolutely not. We are not going to let these people go free. Yeah. And and Gary Ridgway, he admitted that if he ever got out of prison, he would commit more murders. He openly said, oh, yeah, I will do this again. I could totally see him saying that. And you know that he's not the only one. Why? No. Why would this even be something that would be brought to the table? Yeah, I mean, I get overturning, like, the death penalty. I know that there's obviously, I get that conversation. I get having that conversation. But this, I do Mm -hmm. not understand why you would ever want to put these people back on the street. (laughs) I'm, like, angry (laughs) about uh, why. Who would would say, yeah, why don't we er overturn that? Why? I don't like, understand the reasoning. That? Only money, maybe. I, I heard a rumor yeah. once that it costs like enough to put someone through college or more, maybe multiple times for what expense it is to keep these guys in prison their entire lives. I mean, think about it. The food, the cost for paying the the guards and the staff and medical care and yeah it, it doesn't it it doesn't add up in my opinion um i i feel like it's probably purely a financial thing if i'm being honest i think that's probably what it boils down to is money i could see that which i'm sorry but if we're getting so greedy and desperate for money at this point that you are willing to bring that to the table as a viable option for saving money. How dare you? (laughs) Like, who do you think you are? Clearly, um, you've never had to go through something like this. And I think that that needs to be addressed. And I think that moral, moral tests need to be taken before bringing shit like this to the table. Yeah. Well, and thank God that it's terrible to say this, but the person who is in a political position to oppose this bill, she's the sister of one of the victims. And 
who better could you have in opposition than someone who is closely connected to one of the victims? I agree. Unfortunately, there is a clause in uh, Gary Ridgway's sentencing that does say he will never, ever get out of prison. So even if they were to, like, overturn this for whatever reason, that clause prevents him from ever seeing the light of day. I'm glad. Yeah. If you're not going to learn, I mean, (laughs) there is no excuse. Even for what kind of childhood you have, there is no excuse for turning into something like that. And the fact that you are in a position where you are in prison for something like this that you have done, and you are still willing to go out there after how many years to do the same thing. There's no hope for you. None. Absolutely none. None. And uh, that's a wrap, folks. That is a wrap on G is for Green River Killer. And I think we might have been able to present this as one episode, it seems like. We'll we'll look at that. But yeah. Yeah. So that's a wrap on our first official true crime episode. And as always, if you want to get in touch with us or find us, we are at Oh yeah. Um, have some we options. actually have face yeah, Facebook group, right? Under Macabre yeah. Podcast. The website yeah. is we- Macabre Pod. And you can actually even subscribe on the website to kind of get notifications from us. Uh, there's also the ability to leave a recording for us, a speak pipe, if you yeah. will, and it allows you to record for up to five minutes. So if you have any stories you want to share, macabre hometown or hometown macabre, I should say, or just topics you want us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. Please And do. then what else do we have? We actually have an email as well that you can reach out to us. And that would be macabre at gmail.com. Yes, ma'am. And then uh, we also have the Instagram, right? We do. That's the macabre pod, right? Yes. Macabre pod. Macabre it's hard for pod me to keep Instagram. all of that straight. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm finally like just like trying to like remember everything that we have. The the episodes before this, you're like, yeah, where we got it? I'm like, oh, and then I freeze up. Like, <laughs> and now I'm like, I don't remember what they are. But <laughs> yeah, I think eventually we'll get it straightened out. But um, yeah. yeah, there's I think. The macabre, like that name itself is, I think it's probably in a lot of podcasts on um, Apple podcasts, Mm -hmm. maybe not so much on Spotify, but yeah, yeah, if uh, by this point you are listening to the podcast on Apple, it would be amazing for us as new podcasters if you could leave a stellar review, a five-star review would be amazing with, um, a, you know, comment. We want to hear what you think about the show. If for some reason we don't live up to your expectations, we also want to hear from you. But if you could shoot us an email and let us know what we could do to earn your five-star review, Heck that's yeah. even better. Because as you know, with Apple specifically, um, for new podcasters, you know, there's a the potential to get on like the top 200 list and that puts you in 
a more visible place for other people to find the podcast. So that would help us out tremendously. And we would love you forever. Absolutely. We really want your honesty because obviously we we're new to this and we definitely want to grow. We want to, we want to do what we can for you. So please let us know, be honest, but be gentle and and also, (laughs) and also to satisfy those earworms. Oh, heck yeah. Heck yeah. And uh, Blair, what do we have coming up next? We have the letter H, H for Henry and his wives. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know a little bit about that, but not a lot. So I'm I'm keeping out of the files. <laughs> I'm not cheating. <laughs> well, you're probably going to be... It is like the real housewives of Henry VIII, to be honest. There's a lot to unpack. Uh, there's a there's a lot (laughs) (laughs) so you're saying he could have had his own reality show or at least the women could have oh definitely (laughs) he totally could have it is insane well listeners i hope that uh, i didn't completely ruin you on this episode it was very macabre definitely not for the faint of heart yeah but uh, I know it was a deviation from what we kind of done on the previous episodes, but true crime is the most macabre of macabre. And we're talking about macabre humans. So I did yeah. want to add that to to the rotation and you might hear a few more in the future. But definitely. Yeah, there's a lot to uncover with the macabre. Yeah. So stay tuned. Stay safe. Yes. (laughs) And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, friends. Bye.